We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie. I'm Sarah. And today we are joined by the wonderfully talented Kate Rhodes. Hi Kate. Hello, nice to see you both. Hi Frankie, hi Sarah. Hi, nice thank you for you. being here. Thank you, it's lovely actually. It's really nice to talk to some human beings well, after being yeah. stuck in front of my computer all day. <laughs> yeah, you might not be saying that in half an hour, we'll see. <laughs> We were just saying as well, the weather is uh, taking a bit of a, uh, an atmospheric turn for us all with thunder and lightning. So this could be quite the episode. Yeah. A pathetic fallacy, perhaps. Look at that <laughs> English degree paying off. <laughs> Finally. It's taken 20 years, but... <laughs> Very much. Before we get into you, Kate, and your wonderful book that we're going to discuss, um, Sarah is going to read out a bio and inevitably Sarah is going to say... Full disclaimer, this was written by Frankie. So Every time. any yep. issues with it, direct the complaints to her. Equally, if you think it's great, all praise to Frankie. So Kate Rhodes is a best-selling British crime writer and an award-winning poet. Her latest books are the acclaimed Isles of Silly Mysteries, which have been optioned for TV. Kate has been passionate about the island since holidaying there as a child and still regularly returns to research her books. Kate's books have been nominated for the Crime Novel of the Year Award and the Library Dagger Award. Her latest in the series is The Brutal Tide, which sees D.I. Ben Kitto being targeted by the ruthless and calculating gang leader Craig Travis, who sets out to make him pay for his role in getting him convicted. With Kitto busy investigating the discovery of the body on the islands and distracted by the imminent arrival of his first child, his defences are down. He has so much to lose and Travis will stop at nothing to take it all from him. Kate was born in South London, but now lives in Cambridge with her husband. She did a wide range of jobs, including working in bars, being a theatre usherette, and teaching at a liberal arts college in Florida before focusing on her writing. She works part-time as a creative writing fellow at Cambridge University and is one of the founders of the Killer Women Writing Group. She is also incredibly kind, generous with her time, and makes wonderful videos about her writing process. <laughs> there you go. Aww. Thank you very much. That's really, really kind of you both to be so polite. Well, not at all. I'll do my best not to let you down. (laughs) Was I accurate? Did I get all the information correct? Yeah, you know, it's funny when I was thinking about that, I was thinking just how much I enjoyed being a barmaid. Really? Looking back on all those jobs. Yeah. I kind of do with another stint in a bar, I think. You just get to hear so many great stories, don't you? Very true. Working in a bar. It's hard work though yeah. I've, yeah I've done it have you done it Sarah I've worked in a bar mm. yeah, yeah back at uni yeah same you definitely exactly. learn a lot it's maintaining that smile all night long isn't it that becomes a bit of a chore after a while yeah yes. and go home to have a cry or <laughs> quiet meltdown <laughs> or just to get over the hangover well yeah that too <laughs> I also remember one of the things I remember vividly from working in a pub was when the cordial would stick to your arm did you ever get that like the black currant cordial lime cordial it was like wax by the end of the yeah evening. I know just all that kind of sticky gunky sugary stuff yes oh god enough to to put you off lime cordial for life (laughs) and there really is nothing like the smell of a pub carpet (laughs) yes that's a unique don't even get me started on pub toilets oh Mm. yes let's not go there that's a conversation for another day (laughs) definitely (laughs) absolutely 
So, Kate, you've obviously been writing for quite a while now and you've got a real journey with it. And clearly from various careers to where you are now, and now you're even teaching creative writing, which is incredible. <laughs> At Cambridge, no less, which is, you know, pretty good. It's lovely. Oh, thank you. Um, pretty yeah. incredible. So what, what is it about writing for you that's drawn you in over the years? I think you either love writing or you don't. I mean, I think I was very, very fortunate that I grew up in a family where there were books all over the place. Because I think it's probably reading that makes people want to write, isn't it? You read these great stories, you become immersed. <laughs> and then before you know it, you want to write your own. Mm. I think I've just always really loved stories and the fact that you can escape into them. You know, mm. I think the value of escaping into books is sometimes underrated for children, particularly. Mm. Yeah. If life gets a bit tough, you can just disappear off into a fantasy world, can't you? Absolutely. I think that's a magic thing to do. I still do, actually, <laughs> even now. But yeah, it took me a long old time to get to the point where I was, you know, a published author. I always say to students when I'm teaching people creative writing, don't expect it to be quick. Yeah. You have to do the hard yards first, normally, unless you get incredibly lucky. Mm. So how long um, were you writing for before you had your first, how long were you seriously writing for before you had your first published novel? Years and years and years. Yeah, it was years and years. I mean, I'm what? 58 now and I was 40 something 42 I think when my first book came out but by then I'd already written a couple of collections of poetry mm. and I I loved doing that actually I think that maybe learning how to write through being a poet was wasn't a bad way in actually because mm. I think you have to be very precise when you're writing poetry very accurate not too many loose words on the page yeah yeah I think it took me the truth the absolutely honest answer is bloody ages <laughs> I wanted to ask about your approach to writing poetry versus writing crime fiction as you say there's a there's a it's a totally different kettle of fish and there's precision in poetry perhaps that there isn't in in crime but is it is do you approach it in a dramatically different way or yeah you know it's really weird I do things old school when I'm writing poems um quill for and some ink. reason pretty much yeah yeah I, I do the, the whole kind of John Keats thing really oh nice I need to write with a pen. I need to write on paper. That's, um, you know, I need to write in a decent notebook and just write draft after draft after draft. There's something about the words kind of having to make a physical journey from your brain to your page that, that really slows you down because I type really quickly now after all these years, mm -hmm. and, you know, so you have to stop and think a bit when you're actually writing physically, don't you? Yeah, that's true. Do you have a preference between the two or do you like them both in different ways and you want to keep doing both? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, I mean, I love them both, to be honest. I mean, poetry is where I started out. But, you know, there's a vanishingly small audience for poetry in the UK, mm. sadly. So I like the feeling that when I write crime novels now, I'm, I'm talking to a bigger set of people. Mm. You know, I get I get nice messages on Twitter if I write a good book and I certainly wasn't getting that as a poet. Oh, that's I think such I like a the shame. conversation element of it. <laughs> yeah, I quite often go and browse the, I say the poetry section in bookshops, but it's often just mm. one bookcase, isn't it? Maybe not even exactly. filled up. And there's not a huge amount of selection. It's a shame because I love a good poetry book. Mm. Like, it's such so a, right. yeah, Absolutely. really nice. Yeah, um, and you make a really good point as well about the crime writing and reading community and how you know welcoming and warm it is yeah and it's from you know reading the reviews and things you, you clearly have a, a lot of very loyal and loving fans in the crime community which is wonderful <laughs> um how have you found that experience developing a series 
of of crime stories with an ever growing audience. Well, it's it's lovely to have a growing audience, not least because the publishers keep wanting to publish them. I guess they wouldn't <laughs> otherwise. But yeah, it's more of a dialogue. You just find yourself communicating with more people, mm. and it's a real pleasure. I mean, I I love the crime community, both the readers and the writers, because it's friendly, like you mm. say. It's I have to say, it's more friendly than the poetry community. Oh, really? <laughs> Maybe that's just because you know there are so few opportunities in poetry. It's a bit sort of daggers drawn, really. Mm. Would you say they're barred tempered? Oh, thank you. <laughs> they are a bit. <laughs> some are, some are. I had a couple of fairly horrendous experiences working with with poets. Oh think None of us should ever be too precious about our writing. You know, at the end of the day, we're all just putting words on the page that we hope people are going to enjoy. Mm. Shouldn't be very much room for egos, I don't think. That's yeah. also a really interesting thing in relation to crime writing, because historically crime has well it comes it comes and goes in waves i think but there's been a bit of snobbery around some of crime writing historically mm. and i guess yeah i guess poetry mm. is at the flip flip side of that which is you know it's high art exactly high yeah. art versus low art yes but when i look around me at some of the most successful writers like val mcdermott you know oxbridge graduate super clever lady who's also written books about jane austen mm. This is a very, very highly educated community, really, for writers. So, yeah, I don't know. There is always that big discussion about whether crime writing should be eligible for big prizes. But why not? Mm. I mean, we're all writing about the most important things in life, you know, love, life and death, whether you're writing a crime novel or a regular one, I think. Mm. And it's so hugely popular nowadays as well. We were discussing what we were reading in the office recently and Every mm-hmm. single person was reading a crime thriller of some description. Wow. It's just that's it's interesting. Huge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. That's that's really interesting, actually. I think there's also there's been a shift away from chiclet, hasn't there, or romantic yeah. fiction? Yeah, that towards crime, I think, which is, which is interesting. Yeah, completely. I think as well, it's it's so reductive to kind of consider crime writing a low art when it the amount of craft and genius that has to go into writing a good convincing compelling crime story you know it with mystery elements and thriller that's very that takes an immense amount of skill and talent to be able to do (laughs) it certainly takes a good memory that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) but thanks frankie I'll, i'll think about that I'm constantly calling down my genius. You should. Writing. You should. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Everyone gather around, watch my genius. I'm writing. Yeah. Watch, watch <laughs> it grow. Watch it flow. Yeah, exactly. I was having a little, a light stalk through your Twitter account <laughs> and w- watch some of your lovely videos that you have done. And I found it really interesting that you write standing up. Yeah, yeah. I like to, to write standing up like I'm standing up now talking yeah. to you. I think I'm... Um, For years, I just sat on the couch like a regular couch potato (laughs) and just got more and more sort of stiff and uncomfortable in my body. But if I write standing up, I don't know, I think maybe it's bring a bit more energy to it. You know, it feels more dynamic somehow. Yeah. I I really like that. It It was really tough at first, though. I used to find that by the end of the day, my feet hurt, my back hurt. But now I'm just used to it. You've got some core strength going on. That's amazing. <laughs> I guess I must have. That's yeah. a bonus, actually, isn't it? You yeah, right. That. Some part of me must have got used to it because it's just like normal now. Yeah. In fact, I'm even thinking of vlogging my little sofa. 
just so I don't get tempted to sit back down again. (laughs) What made you start writing Standing Up to begin with? Well, it's funny, you know, I've got this weirdly competitive relationship with my sister. She told me to do the Couch to 5K programme, first of all, which I did. And I thought, I can't let her be fitter than me. (laughs) Um, And then she said, and now I've got a standing desk. And I thought, oh, God, Uh now now I've got to do it as well. (laughs) It was a bit of sister shaming going on, I think. Brilliant. The next thing you need to get is one of those walking pads under your standing oh, desk. that really would be a bit overkill, wouldn't it? I oh, know but you'd win. Do that. You would win. <laughs> you'd have to use it, just get it and have it there. Yes. I could just pretend. Exactly. It's a thought that counts. walking all day. Yeah. You've lost another five stones. Yeah. <laughs> and written three more novels. So. Yeah, Ooh. I know. Yeah. I haven't even <laughs> broken a sweat, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting you were saying about how standing up kind of gives you, you know, keeps things flowing, keeps you energized. That's a good tip. And obviously as a teacher of creative writing, I'd love to know what, what's a, a, a tip that you like to bestow upon your students? What's something that you, a, a good learning that you think is beneficial to impart on writers? That's such a good question, Frankie. I, th- I think that, I mean, I've done a lot of teaching over the years, lots of teaching of creative writing, and I've really, really loved it. And I really don't agree with people who say creative writing can't be taught. But I think the main thing you're giving people is belief, mm. because I think everybody, every intelligent person, everybody who cares about books could write a book if they wanted to. But the thing that very often people stumble over is self-confidence, self-belief. Mm. So I'm always staggered by just how many of my students who are absolutely excellent writers, their sort of self-belief is lagging a long way behind their technical ability to write. So I think it's a pet book mainly. Keep giving Aww. yourself a pet talk every day. And join a lovely, creative and supportive writing community if you can. There are loads of good, good ones online now, like the London, the London Writers Salon. You don't have to live in London to join them online. There's something about being part of a writing community that keeps you going, I think. Well, you have accountability to someone other than yourself, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, they're all waiting for you to produce your next book, which is a great feeling. Yeah. yeah. Do you find that the um, the old cliche is true, that everyone has one particular story in them that they're wanting to yeah, get out? Absolutely. I mean, as soon as you tell somebody that you're a writer, they always say, oh, I've got a story that I'd love to tell. And they tell you it and you think, well, that's a great story. Why haven't you just done it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, crack on and do it, you know. But again, it comes down to that self-belief thing, doesn't it? Mm, And I think I was about 40 before I really believed that I had the tenacity, the courage, whatever you want to call it, to sit down and write for a whole year, knowing that that book might get rejected. Mm, Yeah. Scary thought that you might have wasted a year of your spare time for something that may never see the light of day. You've kind of got to enjoy the journey as well, I think. You've got to enjoy the ride. Yeah, definitely. Can I say two things that are probably going to sound mildly creepy? Uh, one <laughs> is that you have a med- uh, the fact that you are, you say you're 58? Yeah, that's right, 58. Your yeah. skin is absolutely incredible and I'm yeah. blown away. <laughs> but you look, you, I would never have guessed in a million years you were anywhere close to that. That's the I first it one. Must be the, it must be the Dove soap. Oh, <laughs> great tip. Okay, Dove soap. It. Oh, bless you, Frankie. No, I, no, I really do love you. Oh, I love you. It's a worry that I'm writing a book about stalking currently. Now I'm going to get to the second one, which is creepy, um, which is that you have the most calming voice ever. I'm so oh, soothed by this conversation. Really nice. oh, you know what I have noticed is that when I read 
to my grandchildren at night. They drop off super fast. <laughs> they... so it, must, it must be true. <laughs> it's very soothing. I feel very calm. I don't feel sleepy, but we'll see how it goes. I feel just relaxed. Yeah, wait, wait. Yeah, wait each time. <laughs> Okay, well, we've kind of, we've touched on aspects of this already. But one of the questions we always ask the authors we speak to is, um, what do you most enjoy and also least enjoy about the writing process? Oh, yeah, I think the thing I most enjoy is when it really takes flight. Mm. So when you're writing, and suddenly your imagination just soars away from you, and you forget that you're writing, you forget that you're in the middle of concocting a story. You're just in the narrative. You're sort of body surfing on it, like you're riding a wave. It's, an, it's a weird kind of out-of-body experience, that. But it is, you're always, I think, as a writer, trying to hit that sweet spot mm. where you forget you're writing and you're just sort of in the story. That's the bit that I really love. doesn't happen every day. doesn't happen every week. <laughs> but when it does happen, it's magic. It's golden. Yeah. It must mm. be the most satisfying feeling at the end of the day when you realise you've been in that mm. zone. And you bask in your own genius, like we were saying. Yeah. Well, well, quite. I do a fair amount of that, as you can well imagine. <laughs> quite right. Absolutely. <laughs> what about least? The thing I hate, actually, is when it sticks. It's like when you're driving an old car, you know, and the gap, and the gear shift doesn't work properly and <laughs> the brakes don't work properly. And, you know, I used to have a Ford Cortina like that many, years ago, <laughs> many, many years ago. And it, it's just that the worst feeling when you know there's a story in you waiting to come out, but somehow it's just refusing, you know, and there's no point in really trying to wrestle it out of you. You've just got to be patient and wait a few hours or a few days till, till it returns. That could be very frustrating. <laughs> Have you ever given up on a, a book entirely because it's just the story's just not coming? Have you always found a way around it eventually? Yeah, I did actually. I found my second book really, really hard to write. I think because, um, you know, I was very lucky. I got a big publisher for my first book and they were very nice, very encouraging. And they seem to be expecting big things from my second book. And there's nothing like having people expect big things to really terrify you, mm, is there? No. And I, I did a few false starts. I wrote about 40,000 words of one story and just thought, this isn't working. I'm not even enjoying wow. writing it, let alone yeah. having some, some poor bugger read it. So yeah, I just binned it. I just wow. literally pressed the delete button and said au revoir and felt much better afterwards, actually. Good. <laughs> Yeah, it was a relief. That's the right decision then, clearly. If you were like, oh, God, undo, undo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been really awful. Wouldn't yeah. It? If I'd suddenly woken up the next morning thinking, oh, my God, my staggering work of genius is no longer there. <laughs> I forgot I was that a genius for a second. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I should have preserved it for all of posterity. That's it. Yeah, it's absolutely awful. <laughs> it was beyond, beyond awful. Don't believe that for a second. Well, speaking of your staggering genius, let's talk about The Brutal Tide, which <laughs> it's been so wonderful going on this journey with Ben Kitto uh, over mm. these books. So this, this one is, take, is very targeted, specific about Ben and his life at the moment. So how did you get to this point with him and the character? Yeah, I mean, Ben's private life has been sort of gradually developing over yeah. the last five books that he sort of arrived back in the Isles of Scilly down in Cornwall, a broken man, completely alone with somebody's dog that he didn't want to be looking after. And since then, his kind of love affair with the dog has blossomed. But also he's got a partner that he really, really cares about. And in this book, she's 
heavily pregnant and about to have their, their first child. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a very important time of your life, I think, when you're, when you're getting ready to have, to have your first child and you're, you're very um, hyper aware of any danger around you that could actually cause peril for your mm. family. And I think that's the state he's in. And yet suddenly all of this danger hits the island's shores when he's passed as an undercover investigator in London comes back wanting. And yeah, it was an exciting book to write because the stakes were high, really high stakes for him this time. What I find really refreshing about, about Ben Kitto is, and it's something actually that when we're going to get to another question in a minute that we ask everyone that comes on, is we ask people often what typical crime genre trope they're, they're a bit sick of, they hate and kind of thing. And often mm. it is the kind of the, the broken detective what I love about Ben Kitto is that he's he's coming full circle and he's getting to a really good place. Mm. And it's lovely to see a positive. Well, clearly it gets a bit rocky <laughs> in this one <laughs> for having the nice the nice developments in his life. But often um, yeah. it's, you know, sometimes it feels like the character is so hopeless and there's nothing joyful in their lives. Yeah, it's nice I, to see some I joy. Agree, actually, Frankie, that's a trope that I got a bit bored of as well. That mm. you know, here's your broken cop who never emerges from the pub and is kind of really self-harming. If yeah. you like, I didn't want Ben to be that guy. I wanted him to be somebody who was on a real quest for happiness as well yeah. as a, a quest for a killer. Mm. Actually, I think books about happiness are much harder to write mm. than books about sadness. You know, it's very easy to resonate on that note of despair yeah. <laughs> for all of us. I think. But to write about somebody who's just kind of casually happy most days because he's got a good relationship and a kid that he loves and a dog that he loves in a place that he loves is actually harder than I thought it would be. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm. What made you set the books in the Isles of Scilly? Have you got a connection there or were you looking for just somewhere lovely, basically? <laughs> <laughs> well, they really are lovely. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, I went down there for the first time when I was seven. My dad had been in the Navy during the war and he'd always just sailed past these islands on his way to Plymouth. And I think he thought, hmm, they look beautiful. <laughs> so he literally, after that, dragged us down there almost every year. And we either stayed in a caravan or we camped. Oh. And I just remember sort of long, hot summers on those very empty beaches, mm. flying a kite or learning to swim. So there's quite a lot of big, you know, good memories on those islands for me, plus friends obviously people that I know yeah so yeah it's a real pleasure to get down there I recommend it strongly but I suppose the other thing to say about them is they are ideal territory for a crime mm. novel some of the, the islands that I know best like Briar only have 80 permanent inhabitants on them so you get to know pretty much everybody in the course of a book mm. certainly you get to know the community well if you spend any amount of time down there so it's effectively a locked room mystery but a locked island mystery in effect yes. yeah exactly yeah exactly very much i love a locked room mystery mm. Ooh, me too and and speaking of getting to know characters and things like that if you had to be a character from your books who would you be and why yeah, that's a really good one. I mean, I think probably I would be Ben. Um, yeah. And I just for the for the idea that, um, you know, there's a kind of lovely ventriloquism when you write about um, characters from the opposite gender. You have to imagine yourself leading a very different life. And he's he's a big fella. Here I am, <laughs> five foot three, you know, particularly large. And here he is, six foot five and um, built like a heavyweight boxer. 
I think it would be just fascinating to be him for a few days. Yeah. Not sure I want to be him forever, but um, (laughs) I'd certainly like to have his dog. Yeah, me too. God. I'd love a wolf dog. Oh, that's my dream dog. Absolutely. (laughs) They are beautiful. That's a really interesting point as well about writing in a different gender and things like that. And also, how how do you go about positioning that in your mind? You know, when when you're getting into that character's mindset, how do you position yourself as a a six foot five heavyweight boxer detective? (laughs) (laughs) It's really interesting because I've been having to think about that quite a lot because I'm I'm currently... um, one of the characters in my book is trans and it's not a big deal. It's just, it's just who she is. She's trans and she identifies as she, her, and she's a very strong character. And I think that um, writing about characters who are either male, female or trans is very, is very useful. I mean, I think there's a lot of fluidity around gender anyway. We're all mm-hmm. human beings. I know there's been a great furor lately about this idea of, um, whether or not trans women should be allowed to use public spaces that we all use as biological women. And for me, I know this is contentious, but that's just not a problem. I think if anybody's been prepared to make that tremendously tough journey to come and join us, I say, come on in. The water's warm. Yeah, absolutely. For me, the whole idea of gender is very fluid anyway, you know, um, and very much about social conditioning often too. Oh, completely. We were um, having a similar discussion with Alice Bell recently, who um, just published The Amazing Grave Expectations. And yeah. there's a, a trans character in that book. And we were saying it's it's so refreshing that there wasn't a big deal made about this character being trans. It's just representative and, and yeah. there. And it's so lovely to see that shift more and more recently, especially in, in crime novels where it's quite easy just to skim over any social issues and in inverted commas like that it is yeah but I think it's really important to kind of to say what you feel okay mm. you might be trying to sit right mass market commercial fiction or pulp fiction for mm. want of a better word but you can also say what you feel you can put some of your truths out there as well mm. and that's a really big honor I think as a writer yeah Well, thank you for handling it so much more nicely than some authors we could mention. (laughs) Oh, yes. Now that's each to their own, each to their own, I guess. Yeah. Mm, That's the nice way of saying it. You're not nicer (laughs) than than I am, Kate. Uh, And that's also one thing I find really, one of the other things about talking about the crime writing community, I'm always so amused when how lovely all crime writers seem to be. We've interviewed uh, loads now. I've met a lot at places like Harrogate and other crime events and everyone is super lovely, but you do always have to have oh. the back of your mind that they could commit a murder and get away with it. Mm. <laughs> and what was it about yeah. crime that drew you in as a lovely, kind person who writes poetry? What, yes. what, what dark yeah. secrets do you have, Kate? Well, you know, I think it's a weird, this is a weird answer, but I think maybe... I can't remember who it was who said you don't have to have had a shit childhood to be a writer, but it really helps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, certainly. Um, My childhood was extremely difficult and dark. Mm. So I think the opportunity to sort of write some of that darkness out of my system is always good. And maybe the fact that we are constantly writing the darkness out of us, out Mm. of ourselves, means that we can be light the rest of the time. It's quite therapeutic then. Yeah, definitely. You can kill everybody you ever hated on the plane. You don't have to do it in real life. You know. I'll be absolutely honest and say that I once worked for somebody, my boss, 
who was most definitely high up on the psychopath scale. Mm. And I won't name his name, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he's definitely been killed a few times in my book. Oh, God. (laughs) Brilliant. I'm sure he deserved it and uh, very happy to help you bury any bodies that you need. Yes. Disposing. You You should dig the holes later. (laughs) That's a job for me. I love that. You say this in the the most calming, soft voice that you've murdered Peter so many times. I think that's just perfect. It's beautiful. Yeah, I just have to think of really inventive ways to do it. Yeah. So Frankie mentioned this previously, but as said, um, one of our usual questions is, what typical crime genre trope are you a bit sick of? Do you really hate? Is there anything that jumps out to you? You know what I think, and it could just be because I've read a few of these books recently, it's the oh no, somebody stole my baby trope. Yeah. I used to just be so um, horrified by that concept. You know, there's nothing more horrifying than a child being seized, is there? It's horrific. It's the worst thing anybody could imagine. But I think because there are so many people using that trope now, Mm. I'm just a bit tired of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really yeah, good point. Nice. Yeah. It did seem like for a while, like you you'd see that kind of subject occasionally come up and you'd be a bit like, oh cool, that's a heavy one. And then people being like, That is a heavy one. I'm gonna try it too. And then there's a lot yeah, of exactly. then nobody's got any kids left at home. They've just all been taken. Exactly. <laughs> They've all gone. And and you also know which ones they are because they always have an empty pram. Yes. <laughs> The empty pram syndrome. You know? Yeah, or the back of a little girl in a coat, in a like a raincoat, then yes. is never seen again. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Well, you've talked about that. You obviously have read read some books lately, and you strike me as a big reader, as someone who loves the craft and the uh, and everything that goes with it. So, what was the last mm. book that you read and loved? Oh, you know, it's actually I've got it here because I was looking at it this afternoon, and it's nothing to do with crime, but it's actually. The Perfect Storm by Sebastian Junger, and the film was based on it. The yeah. Perfect Storm, and the book is so much better than the film because the film's just a bit bleak, right? Is the book Very bleak? bleak? Well, there's a bleakness to a book about um, a, a tragic and terrible fishing expedition. Mm. Well, a professional trawlerman, of course, it's bleak. But the writing about the sea is absolutely exquisite. It's matchless. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. So I'm always um. I love reading about the sea, mainly because I suppose I write about the sea a lot. So, yeah, it's, it's always very inspiring when mm. somebody does it so much better. <laughs> he must have called down his genius to do that, I think. There you go. <laughs> You've been swimming in the genius pool together, clearly. Clearly, that's what it is. <laughs> Frankie, you're up. Well, well, before we do that, there's one other thing about the, the new book, which is um, so Brutal Tide, which is already out in hardback and is now out in paperback. As hopefully I'm going to get this out in time for the release. Um, and what's something you want people to go into Brutal Tide thinking of? Or do you want them to go in completely cold, having obviously followed the other the other books in the series? I think the thing I'd like them to, to figure out really is who is that body? Who got buried on Bad Place Hill? You know, Love think it. it through because I hope very much that I've hidden my traces there. Nothing satisfies me more when I get a tweet from somebody saying, I had no idea until the final page. So, yes. um, yeah, try and figure it out. I've done my very best to fool you. Brilliant. Love, Love a mystery. That. Right. Now, down to some serious business, I'm afraid, Kate. 
That's fine, Frankie. I'm ready. I've got my glass of water. Okay, good. <laughs> He's always I'm got ready. water and sea nearby. I see. Yeah. Wow. Calming. Yeah, water. Sometimes at this stage in the day, just with a small dash of gin. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Shouldn't admit that. Much respect. I? Nope. You do what you need to do. Especially because I'm about to break some terrible news to you. So you might need to top up that gin a bit more, actually, Kate. Oh, oh no. Oh, my days. I'll run down and get some. Yep, quickly. Yep, start necking the bottle because uh, you, <laughs> Kate, have committed a terrible crime, an atrocious oh, no. crime. I know. Oh, no. I know. I was shocked. You seemed so nice. Sorry. But sorry. the first question is, what crime do you think you've committed? And spoiler, it has to be a crime that's warranted the death penalty. <laughs> oh, my days. Do you kill Peter again in real life this time? <laughs> I think the worst reason somebody could possibly, like, like me, could possibly end up on death row would be for a mercy killing. I think a mercy killing is, to be honest, probably the only one I could bring myself to commit. Oh, that's, that's a sad somebody one. Somebody begging me to end their days. Yeah. I'd really resent being on death row for that. Mm. Oh, a bit of a noble reason, though. I feel like it's a bit <laughs> sad that you're on death row now. I was hoping Peter had finally <laughs> right kicked the bucket, but uh, okay. <laughs> Maybe Peter begged for mercy after the, the multiple times you've tried to kill him at this point. That could be it. Yeah, he's <laughs> from all my other attempts. <laughs> so he finally put him out of his misery. R.I.P. Peter. R.I.P. Peter. Um, so, okay. <laughs> Mercy killing, very tragic, very sad, but unfortunately you have been found guilty and you have been sent to death row for this crime. I know, oh, but okay. cheer up, Kate, because the good news is we're going to make you the death row meal of your dreams. And when I say yeah. that, not necessarily Sarah and I cooking, unless you'd like us to, we can make you anything you want from any point in history or any meal you've ever had or anything you want, we can make it for you. What's your order? You know what? I think it would actually be fairly simple. I think I'd just go straight back to one of my very best holidays, which was in Mexico. Ooh, so I'm yes, going to start yeah. proceedings with a tequila slammer. Yes. And then go, and then go full chicken and enchilada and all of the trimmings, you know. Um, but I think I probably would have to have more or less my body weight in chocolate at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Very good. Chocolate is the thing that fuels me. You know, you can forget the gin. Yeah. You can forget the red wine. It's definitely chocolate. It's chocolate and outdoing your sister. Those are the top yes. two. <laughs> Perfect. The two things that galvanize me. Honor, if you're listening. What the kind of what kind of chocolate? Do you have a preference? You know, it's gonna sound a bit of a killjoy thing, but I have trained myself now to eat dark chocolate, actually, Frankie. Very healthy. I used to be full Cadbury milk. But now I'm on the dark chocolate. You're on the dark side. Oh, I, I love dark chocolate. I don't like yeah, it. Yeah, me so too. Good. It's got more flavour, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. It's also not super bitter, like 70%. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I can't go any harder than that. Mm. But don't get me started on death row because I made the mistake of watching some of those death row programmes, documentaries on oh. TV. Mm. Oh, It's tragic. Mm. Harrowing, harrowingly desperate times people mm. have made big mistakes but ooh, I just can't get with the death penalty no yeah, I'm not convinced that one death begets another or cleanses another if no. you like no but if I get the meal you know <laughs> that'll be a bonus so be it <laughs> yeah you know that's it hmm. well and also this sounds like you're trying to get out of death row by saying i don't think it's very fair but unfortunately yeah well yeah exactly that's true you saw my cunning plan <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's happened 
But again, on the plus side, we are going to allow you to take any one book you like post execution <laughs> to oh be buried God. with. What book were you taking with you in your coffin? Yikes. Oh, I think it's going to have to be the first thriller that I ever read and really enjoyed, mm-hmm. which was um, Brighton Rock by Graham Greene. Yeah, great choice. What a classy piece of writing. Yeah. Such an evil teenage killer and such a twisted ending. I read it when I was about 13 and got those goosebumpy feelings on the back of my neck mm. for the first time reading a book. Wow. So maybe that was what started me. I thought these books can just be really fantastic. Yeah. The, and the writing can be so, so clever as well. Beautiful writing from Graham Greene, I think. Mm. Amazing. That's a great, that's a great choice. And also, I'm also really curious, talking about your creative writing, teaching and your teaching in general with literature. Is there any kind of grammatical or spelling thing that drives you crazy that people tend to do all the time? Or is there a co- most common mistake you see in the construction of writing? Because I find one thing that I find drives me crazy at the moment um, that I'm seeing a lot in kind of main, mainly online articles where people starting with, OK, so when they're starting a sentence and that drives me a bit crazy. That is a bit irritating, mm. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not. A great fan of ultra formal writing, but I think you can be too colloquial, and then your writing loses some of its poetry, doesn't it? Mm. I think maybe um, you can chuck too many metaphors down onto any one page if you don't watch out. Similes and metaphors, be quite sparing about those and only use them when they're really going to count. Because I think there are some readers, understandably, who just want you to tell a really good tale. Mm. They're not particularly looking for a load of beautiful similes to kind of muddy the water. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started out as a writer, uh, as a crime writer, I used to just have millions of them going through the book. And my editor would just take the blue pencil to all of them. Ninety <laughs> percent of them went. That's really interesting. That's that's good to know. It doesn't have to be I used high the art. Phrase, as if about three hundred and sixty times. I think. <laughs> Were you furious when you first got the draft back and they were all removed? I did start to wonder if she was starting to, you know, downplay my staggering genius. um, It was as if she didn't appreciate your genius. It was as if she didn't understand what I was trying to do. But, you know, muddy the boundary between poetry and crime fiction. But no, those have gone really, I'm afraid, <laughs> away with the similes. Well, know? I think your writing's still pretty damn good, even without them. Oh, so not bad. Doing all right, <laughs> I think. Very kind of you, ladies. Thank you. Kate, it's been such a delight to speak to you. Truly, oh. thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. It's been such a pleasure. It's exactly what I needed. Oh, good. It was better than chocolate. It was better <gasps> than gin. Oh, it's wow. what I needed at the end of my writing day, just to be effervesced by you both amazing well you can go and have gin as well now that's fine but can we please just put that review on everything better than chocolate better than gin like i'll take that thank you i'm gonna do that and if you send me the link i'll just tweet the heck out of it and go on about your go on about your lovely podcast thank thank you and speaking of twitter where can people find you online to follow you yeah it's um a kate rhodes writer Good. Easy to find. Brilliant. Nice. Take a little look and you'll find me just tweeting like an, a maniac most of the time. <laughs> You're good to follow. My our favourite are when we asked Nikki French, we had them on the podcast. Oh, they're ago. great, aren't they? So great. But they would yeah. they were like, just Google it. We we're like, 
perfect just google it find us yeah yeah that's a really good way to do it actually just take a look yeah Yeah. like we're all doing it constantly with our phones aren't we so true yeah well thank you ladies i'm now gonna go believe it or not and do an amazingly glamorous thing which is cook a fish pie oh sounds delicious wonderful ideas yes well we'll let you go and do that and say thank you for everyone for listening and go and follow Kate, go and get a copy of The Brutal Tide and read yes. our whole back catalogue if you haven't already, because it's marvellous. And uh, Kate, hopefully we'll see you again in a future episode. You'll come back with the next book. Love to. I'd love thank to. You. Thanks so much, Frankie. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Bye. 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 Hey guys, my name is Tony Black, podcaster and author, and I'm here to tell you about Partisan, a podcast about politics and history in film and entertainment. I'll be joined by guests as we discuss films, TV shows, and maybe a little bit more, examining political and historical topics, such as how Elvis intersects with black cultural history. In Lerman's film, the idea of the black characters are maybe kind of they're used as catalysts to basically move Elvis forward in his career. I think that that's how I saw it. The rise and fall of Richard Nixon. It seems to be historians seem to agree with this, is that he was the first president that really capitalised on the evangelical vote and politicised them. The disturbing class satire in society and much, much more. Partisan is free to download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Partisan Pod. I hope you'll vote with your feet and join us on the journey. Partisan.